UN Climate Conference, COP26. COP26. It's the 26th conference of Paris. COP26. Australia's Prime Minister Scott Morrison has said he might not attend the UN Climate Conference in Scotland in November. It's very exciting for the eyes of the world to go in our home city. In November 2021, the world comes to Glasgow, our home city, as it hosts COP26. And welcome to the Path to COP podcast, a podcast dedicated to environmental social governance and all issues relating to sustainability, asset management, and finance. In this special series of three episodes sponsored by Nordea Asset Management, this podcast is brought to you in association with the Global Ethical Finance Initiative and its Path to COP26.com campaign. In episode one, we explore finance, mobilizing public and private finance flows at scale for both mitigation and adaptation. We'll explore the what, the where and the why when it comes to delivering net zero and what that actually looks like in terms of finance and investment solutions. My name is JB Beckett and I will be your host on this podcast. Dear Natalie and Harry, welcome. Thank you. Hi, JP. We have Natalie from the Global Ethical Finance Initiative, and of course, we have Harry from Nordea Asset Management. Welcome to both of you. Now, I'll attach your full bios in the podcast details for the listeners. And you are both leading voices with respect to net zero in investment portfolios, in pensions, and finance's role in climate change. And today we have the finance agenda in the COP26 presidency programme. Ahead of COP, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, reported that extreme events are increasing in frequency, intensity and duration throughout the world. UNEP and UNDP say the world is not doing enough to meet the Paris targets, not even close. So there is clearly plenty for COP to talk about today. So let's dive straight into why is that the case? The issues specifically we as an industry, asset managers, pension schemes, should be thinking about. And when we think about finance, COP26 calls for the mobilising of public and private finance flows at scale for mitigation and adaptation. So the key words here, I think, are mitigation and adaptation. And of course, net zero lies at the heart of this. So when it comes to net zero targets, are we moving fast enough? How best to structure a roadmap that turns 30-year pledges into meaningful actions? If I could come to you first, Natalie. Yeah, of course. Thank you, JB. And it's a, it's a good question to start with, you know, are we moving fast enough? So I think it's worth acknowledging that there has been a lot of momentum in the, in the financial industry around net zero and, and setting targets. You've got initiatives like GFANS, the Glasgow um, Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which includes nearly 100 financial firms responsible for assets of roughly $90 trillion. So, so there is definitely momentum around that. And I think with, with COP uh, being in Glasgow, um, the, the private sector and financial institutions are committing to, to net zero, which is, is great. I mean, I think, are we moving fast enough? There's always more that can be done. And it's also worth acknowledging that although there's a lot of net zero commitments being made, uh, it's not just about commitments. It's about commitments that are being backed up with tangible actions and plans to deliver them rather than thinking of net zero by 
2050 as a far off ambition um, mm. financial institutions need to start taking action now to ensure that we do reach that that net zero target Harry, similar question, I guess, to yourself. Are we moving fast enough with those net zero targets? And I guess, what progress are you hoping to see at COP? Yeah, I, I agree with, with Natalie, of course. But I, I think to the question of, are we moving fast enough with these net zero targets? You can kind of boil that down into two questions, right? Are we setting the net zero targets fast enough? And are we progressing towards those targets fast enough? And, and I think, sadly enough, the, the answer to both questions is no, but but it's particularly alarming maybe on, on that second question, are we actually making enough progress? And I think it's clear that, uh, you know, IP, IPCC with the AR6 and IA with the net zero energy scenario certainly underline that point, but at the same time, it, it, it's also not news. We already knew that, that the world wasn't progressing uh, fast enough. So what we hope to see from COP26 is, of course, um, you know, that problem being addressed. Uh, that includes, of course, a number of, of, of actions that we like to see and a number of agreements that should be made. But if I can highlight just one, it, sh- it should be uh, a focus on, on really removing the barriers like the very extensive fossil fuel subsidies that we still see around the world and, and similar issues in, in, in other high emitting sectors that, that need to be urgently addressed. And Natalie, obviously, what we've seen, I guess, over the last 10, 15 years is asset managers, you know, taking a lead in terms of sustainability and principles of responsible investment. But in more recent years, we've obviously seen the rise of asset owners becoming much more engaged in the subjects, the rise of the IIGCC, for example, and of course, the, the net zero pledges for asset owners. Is committing pensions to net zero a game changer, in your opinion? Yeah, so I think the commitment of pension schemes is is fantastic. Um, I think that's great because they do control a lot of, of assets. Um, so driving action in pension funds is, is critical for achieving net zero. But it is worth acknowledging that, you know, to achieve net zero, it needs to be the whole of society that acts. And, um, you know, the, the government's got commitments about being the Scottish government net zero by uh, 2045. And it needs to be everyone, not not just pension funds. But I do think that pension funds can can play a big role in that. So Jeffy has actually been working with um, local government pension schemes um, over the last couple of months, um, looking at the key challenges that they face in their net zero journey um, and also developing a roadmap which provides um, tangible steps and practical actions that they can take um, to overcome those challenges and to set net zero ambitions and then also deliver on those ambitions. Thanks Natalie and just coming back to you again Harry you mentioned obviously fossil fuels and I guess the the taboo question in in COP is whether you know divestment is the answer what's your view on the the whole divestment versus engagement particularly i guess when it comes to those heavy uh, carbon emitters so I, I think the first thing that we need to be be very clear is that uh, it's not really an option to say at this point that we can only invest in in companies or, or issues that are already today align with a net zero future because I, I don't think most people understand how incredibly small the sample of companies that actually fit that description is. Um, but, but that said, I, I think being selective in your investment process is a large part of the answer and, and the toolbox that we need to use. And being selective in, in your investment process, of course, does entail some divestments or at the very least decisions not to, to invest in the first place. 
But I think a bigger part of the answer is to, you know, first of all, be more active in, in selecting investments in companies who are on the right path to get to net zero alignment. And second, mm. to use you know, your engagements and voting rights to get the remaining companies and, you know, this this group of companies is actually the biggest one, to get those remaining companies on, on the right path. Um, now, we, I think we often talk about divestments as a kind of last resort when engagements don't uh, yield the desired results. And I think for many cases, that is or can be the right way to think about it. But we also need to talk more about how divestment should be you know a response not necessarily to companies past behaviors or the fact that they have had historically high emissions or, or high reliance on fossil fuels but rather as a response to uh, a lack of willingness to change and transition uh, over time so so we shouldn't you know maybe primarily not divest the company over owning a coal power plant but we should think more about divesting them over their refusal closed it or over the fact that they're building a second power plant so you know the transition isn't going to happen yesterday uh, it's on the horizon and we need to think about what are companies doing to actually be in, in line with that transition natalie obviously harry's posing there that you know we can't divest you know everything um and i know you have some strong views on divestment specifically yeah so just gonna jump in and kind of reiterate what harry was saying and i think you know historically there's been a lot of pressure on asset owners to divest and and i think as harry quite rightly said as a last resort it's fair enough but you know divestment just moves the problem elsewhere so i don't think that it should be the first um tool that's used by asset owners i think it's around engagement to drive uh, positive change and to um, you know work with organizations to reduce their emissions and if that engagement isn't working then the divestment is is the last resort because you know better to have um, an asset manager that's working with um, the organizations to reduce emissions and put them on the path um, to to net zero than to have um, you know an, an organization that's invested in them and has no interest in that and, and is just letting them letting them do as they please. Um, and I think engagement is, is really quite key to it. And I, I always like the story of the, the hedge fund um, engine number one, which is quite a small hedge fund, but actually worked with large uh, institutional investors um, at ExxonMobil to instill new directors on the board because the, the existing directors weren't taking um, the action that was required on, on climate change fast enough. Um, so I think engagement really, really is key. It's interesting you picked on the engine number one. I'm, funnily enough, I'm um, talking at the LGPS Sustainability Summit uh, next month, actually. And I use the Exxon uh, engine number one uh, example, and uh, so I talk about that in a bit of detail. Um, but obviously, as you say, engagement is one tool in the toolbox, I guess, for the asset manager and for, for the asset owner. Divestment is another and you know neither might be seen as to be perfect in achieving if with that in mind what are the other i guess tools and frameworks that can help investors on their net zero journey it's been really good with net zero that there have been a lot of uh, tools investment and frameworks that have been developed for um, asset owners to use i'd say you could argue that there's one criticism that there are you know so many tools, initiatives and frameworks now that it's actually very difficult um, 
for investors to decide which ones are, are useful right. and uh, and which ones uh, promote the best practice. I guess probably um, a, a couple just to, to quickly highlight that, that we found very insightful is the IIGCC's Net Zero Investment Framework. Um, so that's around develop, helping investors develop a clear strategy to deliver on net zero um, commitments. And it says um, the number of areas that the strategy should consider um, and it encourages investors um, to for strategic um, asset allocation and investing in climate solutions while also reducing exposure to high carbon assets. And it has different focus areas around governance and strategy, um, portfolio targets, strategic asset allocation, uh, stakeholder engagement, policy advocacy, and it's a very good kind of um, list of of actions and and steps that um, investors can take. Another couple that's probably worth flagging one is uh, the Investor Climate Action Plans, which have um, an expectation ladder and guidance and they in effect give um you know the how investors are taking action in in different areas um around like strategy corporate engagement policy advocacy and investor disclosure and they have four different tiers and the, the idea between the behind the tiers is it it can be used for investors at different parts on their journey so right from investors that are just starting out on their net zero journey through to investors that are really leading the market in it so it can then be used by investors wherever they are on that journey to look at where they are in those different areas at one point and then how they can move forward um, and how they can progress their net zero strategy um, and then probably the final one to mention is climate action 100 plus um, which is really good around engagement and um, so it focuses on high emitting companies and provides um, guidance to investors on how they can uh, engage with those companies to reduce their emissions mm. thanks natalie harry therefore sort of taking and uh, picking up that that idea of engagement this is something that nordia has been very committed to over the years and therefore you know when we're thinking about those tools i guess available to us managers when when engaging companies i'm thinking here uh for example nordea's open letter on the dakota uh, keystone uh, oil pipeline how powerful are those i guess open letters uh today as, as as tools to help engage with companies and what other tools are you using at uh, nordea so it's really quite a diverse uh, toolbox and, and open letters, I would say, is, is one potentially very important part of that, depending on what the case is with, with the Dakota pipeline. It's, of course, something that's very much in the public eye and maybe in a situation like that, an open letter has a higher impact potential. But the starting point is always speaking directly to the company and often in in connection with things like the Climate Action 100 plus assessments and in connection with things like the net zero investment framework and the objectives that we've set for ourselves as part of that framework to really help companies understand what the expectations are. I think there's been a period over over the last five or six years where maybe it hasn't been always super clear to companies what what investors are asking for. There's been you know quite a confusing universe of, of uh, ESG and climate disclosure frameworks, but that is becoming more and more solidified and you know, we can't really accept that as an excuse anymore. Uh, and I think at, at the end of the day, just to pick up on on Natalie's um, uh, comments on, on the Net Zero Investment Framework, I think that framework and some of the other really good tools that we see uh, that have come out in the past year or so, they have one really important feature in common, and it's that they 
put a lot of emphasis on the concept of prioritizing real economy emission reductions. And you know, what does that mean? It kind of really means that we need to think about the question that when we see a reduction in our portfolio carbon footprint or whatever other metric we look at, we need to ask ourselves, where did those emissions actually go? Right. Because if because if, if we can't tie it to, you know, an actual real world company reducing their actual real world emissions, then the question is, have we actually done much good at all? Um, and with engagements, that is where you really have the biggest potential to establish that link between, you know, holding a company that reduces their emissions and then seeing that translate into a, a reduction in your investment uh, carbon footprint. And, and I really don't think there's any way you can do that without a very kind of extensive and ambitious uh, engagement strategy. I think that leads us very nicely onto a, a, quite a philosophical question. Um, we obviously see the rise of this whole new you know, financial universe that's made up of social media and non-fungible tokens and crypto-type assets, which are, let's be honest, are not engaged at all in, the, in net zero or in sustainability. And as a consequence uh, for asset management, you know, they're trying to achieve something. But to, to what extent does it make sense for any financial institution to claim net zero alignment if the same isn't also true? For the economy at large, to your point, Harry, I would say that I mean it's it's an excellent question. I would say the short answer to that is is it only makes sense to a very limited extent because if we say that our investment portfolio or our loan book is net zero aligned, then you know what that really should mean is that the companies we invest in or the companies we lend to uh, are in fact also net zero aligned, and if that's not the case then you need to be skeptical um, of, of a metric that tells you that your investment portfolio or loan book is, is net zero aligned. And I think that's important for two reasons. Uh, the first is that there is, you know, this is a complex topic with a lot of different data points and metrics that we could look at. And I think there is, uh, you know, a tendency to, to maybe focus only on uh, a few aggregated KPIs like like a portfolio carbon footprint, but we can't lose sight uh, of the details that sometimes get lost in that because it's too easy to say that you know we're going to divest from all energy companies or all materials companies and and focus uh, all of our investments in low emitting sectors like healthcare, like uh, IT, um, because sure enough that's going to reduce our carbon footprint in the portfolio, but it's it's going to miss that link to real world emissions and. That's going to hold true even if you were to invest in some of the highest emitting healthcare and IT companies. So we need to have a nuanced understanding of what does net zero alignment actually mean on a company by company level. And that, that is going to be different depending on whether we talk about an oil and gas company or an IT company. Um, so, so really, the second reason as well is, is that for a financial institution to have a credible net zero strategy, an integral part of that strategy has to be to to push companies that aren't aligned today to to become aligned. Of course, we might find ourselves in a situation 10, 15 years from now where maybe half of the you know world's companies are net zero aligned, and then maybe you could say that we only invest in that half of the global investment universe, and therefore we are also net zero aligned. You know, yes, that I think that would be logical, but it's also a very 
optimistic view of the future. And today we're incredibly far away from having, you know, even half of the world's companies being Nazira aligned. Mm. Natalie, do you see that, I guess, that same tension between the work you're doing at Jeffy with the, the local government pension schemes and when you're then comparing that, I guess, to the wider economy as well? Yeah, absolutely. It's around kind of, you know, whole um, economy decarbonisation and net zero. I think, as Harry was saying, you know, if financial institutions declare net zero and that's it, then that's not enough. You know, it needs to be um, every aspect of society, you know, public sector, um, businesses, um financial institutions it, it needs to, it needs to be everyone and we have been as you say jb working with um local government pension schemes um because i think there's increasing pressure on um those schemes to make net zero commitments and deliver on those commitments um because organizations in the public sector you know are under increasing scrutiny around climate change and they obviously have to align with um, the government's uh, emissions reduction target and we have been doing a lot of work at Jeffy um, with our policy positioning paper that was um, published last month and then we're also developing um, a roadmap that that provides practical action for um, local government pension schemes and more broadly pension schemes um, in action that they can take in overcoming key challenges and setting and delivering on net zero ambitions just to really drive action action now and you know to set a target and actually act act now on it because 2050 is a few years away and we really need to um, push financial institutions and the whole of society to start acting now um, in that area. Absolutely certainly when I'm talking with um, fellow non-exec directors and pension scheme trustees there is a a general unease that um, having made the pledges, whether the milestones were in place that would allow this, the practical steps to be taken, um, you know, to move in the right direction. And, and certainly I was detecting that Ill- unease um, on, on some committees. So I think it's great that the work you're doing, particularly with Jeffrey. Um, Harry, I'm going to bring it back to you and I suppose move from the asset owner back I guess, to the asset manager's perspective. And I'm afraid we're going to have to talk about carbon, right? Carbon's always been a quite a difficult subject, I think, for, for most of us to, to, to grapple with. What, in your view, are the best investment solutions in respect to carbon reduction and obviously managing, you know, that, uh, that hot potato of uh, weighted climate intensity? So I think to answer that, uh, we kind of have to start by discussing the, the concept of uh, the double materiality of, of climate change. And what does that mean? It, it means, so when we talk about, um, or when we use the word materiality in, in this space, we mean importance, or you know, the, if something's material, it means that it's important. And the double materiality of climate change means that we need to think about climate change for two reasons. It's important for at least two reasons. One of them is to do with uh, the impact on the world around us. So when you have a company that has some emissions or you have an investment portfolio that has a certain footprint, then those emissions are going to have an impact, you know, in the way of climate change. But the other leg of the uh, double materiality of climate change has to do with the effect that climate change and climate policies have on us and have on the companies we invest in. The reason I say that is because you can use different metrics to to track uh, either side of of that double materiality. 
because when we look at something like a carbon footprint, whether that be for an investment portfolio or for a company, then that is, you know, strictly speaking, uh, a measure of how much emissions did that company cause, and then we can link that to, you know, the effects on atmospheric concentrations, unexpected climate change, and so on and so forth. Uh, but it's not a great measure of climate risk or the impact of climate change or climate policy on the company itself. And the reason it isn't is because climate change is all about negative externalities that aren't priced in today. Yeah. So uh, it, it'd be one thing if companies had to pay a carbon price or a carbon tax for the emissions, then there would be a much closer correlation between uh, their impact on climate change and the financial risk that they take on by virtue of having an emissions intensive business model. Right. But today that's not the case. So, so that there's, there's a few metrics that are maybe more well suited to thinking about the, the risk dimension. Um, you know, we always uh, subdivide climate risk into transition risk and physical risk. But if we focus on transition risk or policy risk for now, then you know we we can use this wacky or weighted average carbon intensity that was one of the recommendations from from the the TCFD uh, when they published their first set of recommendations with the motivation that it is at least a proxy for for climate risk. We can do it a lot better than that. We can make use of, of climate related scenario analysis and, and think about different carbon price curves in, in different future uh, scenarios that can give us a lot more nuance than than a wacky would particularly relevant to do this because um, kind of coming back to this this question of, of considering companies in different sectors against relevant sectoral benchmarks because a utility is always going to have a higher wacky than than an IT company but they might also be subject to very different types of regulations so we need to bear that in mind. Now when we uh, look at the other leg of, of the, the materiality then it's much more relevant to look at other ways of aggregating carbon metrics. This is actually the very reason why uh, TCFD are now changing their recommendations this year to focus more on what's called financed emissions. So you know, out of all of the emissions that happen in your investment universe, what share of that do you actually allocate uh, responsibility to yourself for uh, in, in your investment portfolio? And that's a much better measure of um, that side of, of the double materiality. So. Until you know the kind of ideal state future where all negative externalities are corrected for, we need to pay attention to you know having an ability to really capture both sides. No, it's a good point, and certainly if you know when I was looking at the, uh, I'll, I'll just term it wacky races, you know by between the likes of MSCI, FTSE, a number of other uh, suppliers, there was great variance. Um, you know even for the same issuer, you know you'd look at. You'd look at Shell or BP or another company and you'd look at the wacky from one supplier and it'd be telling you something actually quite different to the other, which obviously has been, I guess, quite problematic you know, for, for asset owners. Just turning that around back for pension schemes, Natalie, some of these metrics are obviously quite inherently complex and they're going to rely on their advisors, consultants, etc. to tell them actually what kind of progress they're making. I think one of the... Um, Again, one of the taboos of that debate is to how much should pension schemes and insurance companies plan ahead for carbon offsetting, you know, and purchasing carbon units to try and get them to their to their net zero. 
Is that something that's been discussed or much more positive and affirmative than that? Yeah, I think it's, it's a great question around, around offsetting because I heard it, it described recently as thinking of net zero should very much be thinking about the zero rather than the net, you know, and I think um, pension funds should be doing everything that they can to reduce emissions and then using offsetting as the kind of last resort for um, for residual emissions that they haven't been able to uh, reduce elsewhere in, in, their, in their portfolio because otherwise there's an argument, you know, you can just carry on business as usual, pay for your offsets and look, you've, you've delivered your net zero targets. And I think it's very much warning against that, that offsets... Um, should be more of a, as a last as a last resort and and that is in industry guidance as well saying that's the best approach and also when you're dealing with offsets making sure that they are you know good quality and and you're not just buying kind of random offsets to to achieve net zero ambitions when we look i guess at you know carbon unit pricing or the model case for you know for carbon unit pricing um when we look at things for example such as the the reduction of the Amazonian forests and, you know, and the, what role does Brazil play in in the bigger picture? Do we still need to reach that, I guess, that nirvana of an efficient carbon-priced market? Uh, yeah, I would say so. Carbon pricing is, you know, it is quite critical um, for for climate change. Um, carbon pricing, and you know, in the absence of carbon tax and offsetting approach is definitely something that plays a key role in this. Harry, any any thoughts on that as well? Is 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 it something that is it a necessary evil? Is it something that actually we do need to try and and achieve? And if if it is, what what do we need in place to you know to create an efficient market around uh, carbon pricing? Mm. I mean, I, I agree uh, fully with with Natalie on on this one. Uh, I mean, of course, if if by carbon offsetting we mean investments in in negative emissions, reforestation, and the like, then of course that is incredibly important but it is also something that should be used for you know the last 10 percent of emissions reduction and really isn't a key of what the global transition strategy should should be you know over the next decade and i think there's um you know something like a kind of motherhood and apple pie response to this because how could it possibly be bad to to plant more trees or invest more more in solar panels um, but of course the, the problem isn't that carbon offsets are bad for people or bad for the planet, uh, it, it's that they are bad as offsets. And you know, by that I mean that they don't actually negate the negative impact of your emissions. Uh, and, and part of that has to do with the difficulty in improving additionality that these are actually offsets that wouldn't have happened un- unless you paid for them. Uh, but part of it also has to do with what I think is a pretty widespread inadequate understanding of how the planet actually works because there is a sense in which you can argue that if you emit one gram of co2 and then you remove one one gram of co2 then there should be no net effect but what we need to understand is particularly when we when we talk about fossil fuels that is hydrocarbon that was taken from the lithosphere or, or the earth crust and then emitted into the atmosphere and then if you plant the tree to, to capture that carbon that carbon is still in the biosphere. It's not put back into the earth crust in most cases. And, and the biosphere, as we know, is a is a very volatile system. It, it, it only takes a forest fire to, to to release that carbon back into the atmosphere. Absolutely. So that really needs to be to, to be to be regulated. Um, and when we talk about about carbon pricing, it's it's really really crucial that 
the 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 tax is levied on the gross emissions and and don't give any credit for it for any you know weak uh, carbon offset. So we've obviously spent a lot of time there on obviously net zero and carbon, um, which is which is great. That's um, I think it's fair to say we've, we've well covered uh, sustainable development goal number thirteen. Um, there's obviously another another sixteen to play for when we try to expand, I guess, net zero into a, a broader sense of sustainability what are the best solutions for sustainable development goals and do we need to integrate sdgs better into finance and portfolios generally any thoughts on that natalie yeah that's a great question because it's very fundamental to what we do at jeffy you know we're doing a lot around climate at the moment but our overarching ambition is around the sustainable development goals so i think there definitely needs to be more action from the the financial sector in achieving the sdgs you know it's widely known as a 2.5 trillion dollar annual shortfall to achieving the sdgs and and we need to achieve them by by 2030 and um, so Definitely some of the lessons that have been learned in net zero and the great work that's, that's been doing there around um, financial institutions, it would be great to see this moving into broader SDG um, alignment of the financial sector um, and seeing you know pledges, initiatives, frameworks like we're seeing in net zero and moving that across um, and applying it more broadly to the sustainable development goals. Harry, same question, I guess, from a from a fund manager's point of view and thinking about sustainable sustainability more broadly, you know, green and blue bond markets, you know, different asset classes that can, you know, help support biodiversity and, and some of the wider considerations. Where where do you think you see this this market heading? So I, I can tell you where I'm I'm really scared that it might be heading, and it's kind of on a similar line of thought as some of the points we, we made in relation to climate, which is that when we look at development indicators and, and SDG scores or what, what have you, it is more important than ever to pay close attention to things like momentum and financing gaps rather than taking a static view on you know, what is the level of development today? Because just think about it, if we gave every country in the world an, an SDG score based on how far away they are from meeting the SDGs, then we would you know, inevitably find ourselves ranking a lot of low-income countries in desperate need for development finance uh, at the bottom of that list. So those are really the places where we should focus most of our financing. And, and I think that ties in to uh, you know, the, the issue of labelled bonds, whether it be green bonds or sustainability-linked bonds or social bonds, that the very, I think, reason for existence for these instrument types is that they're supposed to enable the transition and the redirection of finance into areas where there is currently a lack of it. So when we see, uh, you know, countries around the world thinking more about tying their their bond instruments to concrete development objectives, that allow us to get out of that trap of only looking at static data or backward-looking data and really looking at the intentionality uh, behind the financing. And we've seen, obviously, the rapid expansion of impact investing, particularly, I think, in private equity and private debt markets. Is that something that you welcome, Harry, or do you see some some dangers ahead? I think there's a a risk of confusion here because when we talk about private equity in particular, I think the the very notion of impact is kind of twofold. Uh, It's on the one hand, 
the impact that the company you invest in has on the world and, and you know ideally that's positive but you would also tend to lay claim to having an impact by making that investment in the first place i think what is you know maybe more uh, in need for scrutiny is the emergence of impact investing in in public equity or listed equity where you only have one leg of that kind of impact uh, uh, or narrative so it is really important to think about uh, the impact that the companies you invest in have. It's not the same thing as really directing uh, your capital to places where it actually enables that impact to happen in the first place. Natalie, do you see much focus on impact investing? Is there much conversation going on there in among the pension schemes? Um, so I think amongst the pension schemes, probably... Not so much. I guess it depends how you see impact investing. If you see it as a as a separate asset class and an area, or whether you see impact investing as, like Harry said, is just the impact twofold around the investments that you made. Um, but I mean, impact investing generally, you know, on, on paper, is fantastic. You know, considering social and environmental uh, impact as well as as financial returns um, but it, it is difficult it's complex you know how are you measuring that impact and whether that impact would have happened without investment and, and how you measure um, and, and verify verify that impact so um, I think impact investing is great but I think there's also a lot of, of challenges um, that, that need to be overcome um, in the, in this sector. And obviously, Harry touched a little bit on metrics and measurement um, before, uh, Natalie. What are probably the main data challenges lying ahead from your point of view, I suppose, specifically for net zero and, you know, obviously for, for pension schemes, etc.? Yeah, data is, is a massive, a massive um, challenge for, for pension providers. So, you know, it's getting data for net zero across all of your asset classes, across um, your different scopes. It, is is difficult um, and that has been been identified by the pension providers that we have been speaking to um one kind of word of wisdom that i heard was you know don't let perfect be the enemy of of the good so you know data is a challenge but it's better to take time to assess what data you have um, and how it can be approved rather than using data as, as an excuse for for inaction Harry, I know that you are immersed. Are there challenges? And also, is there light at the end of the tunnel? What, what's coming through? What's innovation that, you, that you're seeing that gives you a cause for optimism? First of all, I, I very much agree with, with Natalie that we can't let uh, perfect be the enemy of good. And I think in the past year and, and, and in years to come, we're seeing some really truly heroic work being being done on the data development side. Uh, most recently, uh, I, I mean, I would like to highlight transition pathway initiative and all of the work that they're doing to expand their coverage and the quality of their analysis when it comes to to climate alignment of, of you know from hundreds to tens of thousands of, of issues out there and that's going to be immensely impactful and really i think the bigger data challenge is not so much in the data availability and data coverage side although that does exist i think it's more challenging when it comes to reaching a high enough level of maturity on the data consumption side because it is difficult to keep up with, with all of these developments and, and we do have ESG specialists like ourselves who, who are accustomed to this but it needs to penetrate much more widely than that to to reach uh, you know everyone who, who, who works with these things and that is going to be a, a steep learning curve. And just to just to finish there's obviously huge talk about uh, greenwashing 
And uh, you know, we've even seen the rise of this new term, green wishing, which seems to be coming through as well. We've seen a number of uh, whistleblowers, you know, um, in the news. That can obviously give rise to a level of um, cynicism um, around things like net zero. Do we simply have to try and accept that greenwash? Yes, it is pandemic, but um, we can we can learn to live with it. Natalie? I think in an ideal world, I, I would hate to think that we accept greenwashing. Um, but I think it's about transparency, you know, reporting and transparency and making sure that if net zero commitments are are made, it's clear what the organisation is committing to and what that encompasses and then reporting consistently and transparently against that. And Harry, I suppose at the asset manager level, engaging with issuing companies, how do you first engage and you know manage greenwashing from from the issuing companies? What what are you seeing on the ground? I think what we're seeing is, is quite a wide range of, of different instances that that we could interpret as greenwashing. And I think at one end of the scale, you have the really clear cut cases when. You know, companies talk about you know clean fossil fuels, clean coal, and and all of the rest of it, which are you know pretty obvious examples of, of greenwashing. I think what is more difficult to entangle is you know the type of of greenwashing, if you will, where there might indeed be some positive work done, some some emission reductions, maybe some some new interesting business models, but the positive impacts of that are just being overstated, and it's difficult to to verify. And and I think really the only way to to come to terms with that is is as Natalie saying to to increase and elevate transparency and disclosures uh, to to be more active watchdogs themselves, but but also you know potentially to have some of that being being regulated. Uh, I, I think it's it's definitely not something that that we should accept. I think there are definitely solutions uh, out there. Great stuff. I think it's fair to say during the course of this ep- episode we've covered quite a amount of ground. We've covered the race to net zero, the issues within uh, carbon measurement. Um, sustainability and I guess those wider uh, sustainable development goals the bureaucracy, the data, the metrics and of course we've finished with the uh, the taboo topic of uh, greenwashing. I just want to end by thanking you both Natalie and Harry for I guess challenging our listeners, the investors the pension schemes, the advisors as to what to perhaps expect from COP today and how we will progress that forwards after the event. I just want to say thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Please like, share and subscribe. Tune in to more episodes at www.pathtocop.buzzsprout.com Log in to www.nordea.co.uk and find out the latest ESG insights from the responsible investing team. Hilda Jensen, Head of Fundamental Equities at Nordea Asset Management, writes Waste and Opportunity, How to Capitalise on Plastics. Hilda writes that every year an estimated 8 million tonnes of plastics end up in our ocean. Log in to also access the ESG Matters accredited ESG Learning Centre, where Nordea share knowledge, expertise and values for advisors and investment professionals only. COP26. COP26. It's the 26th conference of parties. COP26. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are not on track to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. Not even close. The eyes of the world will be on the United Kingdom and Scotland in particular as leaders come together. 
There could not be a more important moment that we should have international agreements. It is crucial that these meetings in Glasgow, COP26, have success. Climate change is the greatest risk facing us all, and COP26 will bring parties from across the globe together to accelerate action towards the goals of the Paris Agreement and the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Jeffy is a non-profit based in Scotland with a global footprint. We are dedicated to enabling finance to deliver positive change and help achieve the SDGs. In Glasgow, we are looking for action. In Glasgow, we are looking for action. COP26, UN Climate Conference, COP26. 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 It's the 26th conference of parties. COP26. Glasgow, we are looking for action. Thank you for listening to the Path to COP podcast. Tune in to the next episode.